there are more people kind of struggling and going through this than than you know. But what you see are all the strollers and all the people, the happy little kids and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, well, why them and not us? We don't talk about infertility a lot, but it's actually quite common. In fact, one out of every eight couples in the United States wrestles with it. When you're longing for a child, it can feel especially isolating to be part of a family-centered community, as many Jewish communities are. This is Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. I'm Nahani Rouse. In this episode, we talk with one Jewish couple who created a family after their long journey through infertility. When it comes to infertility, there are countless stories to tell and so many ways people cope with it. Some turn to adoption, others invest in fertility treatments, and some opt not to have children. We'll be exploring more of these stories in the coming year in an occasional series about infertility in the Jewish community. Despite how common infertility is, people who struggle with it often feel alone. It can be emotionally, physically, and financially draining. I don't know if we need to Do we need to coordinate? coordinate? Well, you'll edit. I sat down with a couple we'll call Debbie and Mark at their dining room table one evening in Washington, D.C. They prefer not to use their real names. They want to protect their twin son's privacy. Part of the, I think, challenge about sort of being open and honest with these stories is part of it is our story, but but a large part of it is their stories. We want to respect and give them the space when they're older and people search on the internet. Nobody should be able to find out their story without them controlling what the story is. Debbie and Mark's twins are now six months old. Mark turns to a photo album lying on the table. He shows me a picture of one of the boys kissing the other, or as Mark says, eating his brother's face. If only they had been able to see this picture back when they started trying to have children, their four-year ordeal might have been easier. When Debbie and Mark met and got married, they were already over 40. They knew they wanted a family. It was definitely something that we talked about while we were dating and acknowledging the fact that we were um, a little bit older and something that we wanted to, to start working on right away, So, and knowing that it would likely be difficult. Both because, I think, of, of our age in terms of the ability uh, to get pregnant, but also the ability to, you know, be as young as possible for our children and not be those old parents who couldn't keep up with their kids. They decided to consult fertility doctors right away, and a month after their wedding, they jumped into treatment. But the first try at in vitro fertilization didn't work, and the doctors told them the odds of it working the next time were low. Each time we got a more bad news, whatever it was, um... It just kind of changes you, and uh, it, you know, the joy starts to drain away a little bit. Instead of the anticipation associated with pregnancy, they faced a process with very little romance, just a lot of needles, blood work, and doctors. Meanwhile, people all around them were having babies. Debbie and Mark are both very involved in Jewish communal life. I asked them what it was like to be part of a Jewish community while they struggled to have a baby. Um, difficult. You know, there were a few occasions where I found myself going to take a moment in the bathroom and just feeling sad. Um, or leaving services and coming home and saying, I, it just is too hard. Um, 
not anybody's fault, right? Nobody said anything insensitive. It's just watching all the things that you want for yourself that you can't have. Reading yet another email with a birth announcement. Learning about yet another friend's pregnancy. It was hard to feel happy for other people, even though they wanted to. Intellectually, they knew they weren't alone, but they certainly felt alone. I think there's some awareness on our part that we know that whatever communities we're part of, there are others who are in that situation, and this is often not really discussed. I mean, and and there are more people kind of struggling and going through this than than you know. But what you see are all the strollers and all the people, with the happy little kids, and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, well, why them and not us? You know, you can't tell people not to bring their babies to shul, to synagogue. You want people to have happiness. It's not that you don't want them to have it, you just want it too. Was there anything the community could have done differently that would have helped? When you're in it, when I was in it, I didn't want to talk to anybody about it. I didn't need ceremonies or acknowledgments. I wanted to do the medical stuff, figure out what the next step was, make the time move as fast as it could, and just get to the end. They could have tried another cycle of IVF, but Debbie didn't want to waste any more time. I just felt like I'm going to be an old mom, I'm going to be an old mom, I'm going to be an old mom. So like, the quicker we get this done, um, the less old mom I would be. So they opted for something that seemed pretty extreme to them at first, using an egg from an egg donor. At first, when we weren't able to get pregnant with my eggs, That was pretty devastating, I think. It was something I had to kind of, like, just move on from um, because having a child was more important. If I was making the decision on my own, I would have moved to older foster children, potentially, because it felt very selfish to just keep doing all these things when there are children out there. But I have a partner, um, and that wasn't... um, It was important to me if, if we can do it. I'm an only child and sort of the opportunity to, you know, pass along something, um, you know, genetic was important to me. Um, we, do, we did also look into adoption and things like that. And, you know, th- that process is not easy um, and it's not cheap and it's not short. And that was going to be a, a real challenge too. And so, you know, that wasn't necessarily an easier or better option. Mark and Debbie worked with an agency and selected an egg donor. They created nine frozen embryos and forged ahead with the fertility treatments. Using these embryos, Debbie did get pregnant, twice. But both pregnancies ended in miscarriages. When they tested the remaining frozen embryos, they found that most of them had chromosomal abnormalities, which meant they wouldn't develop into fetuses. And so we said to the doctor, like, if if this was you, like, what would you do? And he said, you know, the surest way to have a live birth, right, when you're talking technical, is to use a surrogate. We get a new donor, use a surrogate, you you know, who's been vetted and, and, you know, medically tested and you'll have a baby. I mean, basically, you're trying to take control over the situation. As much as possible, you're trying to, you know, take hold of the process and control all the variables you can. So then we had to figure out, well, what does it mean to work with a surrogate? Each step along the process was kind of more involved and less clear. Surrogacy was difficult to navigate. It's not very common, so there's not a lot of information out there. Debbie and Mark hired a lawyer, 
She helped them find a surrogate and took care of the legal documents. But Debbie and Mark were also thinking about Jewish law. Traditionally, Jewish descent is matrilineal. They looked into Jewish egg donors and surrogates, but there aren't many. And the upside of having a non-Jewish egg donor was that they didn't have to worry as much about certain genetic diseases that are more common among Jews. But if neither the surrogate nor their egg donor were Jewish, Orthodox Jewish law wouldn't consider their children Jewish. You know, I struggled with this concept of if it was the exact same child who was born out of my body, raised in the exact same way, nobody would question their Judaism. But just because of the circumstances of their birth, it opens up this whole conversion question, which became very fraught. And I think I spent a few nights kind of just struggling with it until we could figure out what does it look like to, to convert them. And, and we're wanting to do it in a way that they could be as broadly accepted as Jewish as possible, but we're not Orthodox. Debbie did grow up Orthodox, though, and she feels it's important for her children to be accepted as Jewish in as many parts of the Jewish world as possible. That way, when they grow up, they can make their own decisions about how they want to practice. And this whole conversation, I think, is a little bit foreign for me, kind of given my background growing up in a reform tradition. For reform Jews, patrilineal descent is also valid. I am not used to kind of the the well-defined barriers and things like that in the sense of, well, look, if we raise them in the Jewish community and they participate in this, why, why does somebody else have to give their stamp of approval on it? Thinking about this whole thing was very challenging. and just It just makes you look at the arbitrariness of some of the requirements. Um, you know, we choose to raise our children and, and educate them, and if somebody wants to be Jewish, let them be Jewish, for crying out loud. It's hard enough as it is. While Debbie and Mark were considering their future children's place in the Jewish community, the pregnancy was well underway, far away in Des Moines, Iowa, inside the womb of a woman they had only recently met. There were times when, you know, you forget that you're pregnant, you know, because you're not pregnant. Um, You know, and she, and we tried to be respectful of her space and not be too invasive. Um, And I think she wanted us to have as much information and access as we wanted. So, you know, the relationship between us was as good as it could have been for such an awkward relationship. As Mark and Debbie got to know the surrogate, they came to feel that she was truly motivated by the desire to help other people. Of course, she was also being compensated. So it is not cheap. <laughs> um, you know, we're fortunate that we're in a position to be able to kind of do this, which we know many are not. Surrogacy can cost over $100,000. There's the cost of IVF for the egg donor, the donor's compensation, the surrogate's compensation and her expenses, the lawyer's fee. At a certain point, you stop counting because it, it doesn't do anybody any good. <laughs> At the end of the day, because we were fortunate and, you know, things wound up working out, you sort of don't care anymore. You know, they'll have to, go, they'll have to get a college scholarship. <laughs> we already spent their tuition. <laughs> Yeah, it's like that you forget the pain of childbirth. We, we forget this. <laughs> That's our version. <laughs> Six months ago, Mark and Debbie flew to Des Moines for the birth of their twin boys. They were in the delivery room while the surrogate was in labor. It's just this, like, overwhelming kind of uh, out-of-body experience almost. You know, and she's in so much pain, and you just feel terrible for her <laughs> and grateful 
and amazed that somebody would a do this but for you which is just crazy did you feel right away these are my babies um i i was worried about that um about bonding and, and feeling connected um when the first one was born you know it's just that reflex of tears and just kind of overwhelming yeah i just felt connected they, you know these were these were our babies and we were going to take care of them and and make sure that they were safe and loved and yeah it was never really a question i think it probably helped to be in a in a hospital that had dealt with this before i could imagine a place where this wasn't common and there'd be like wait who's the whatever but they had this kind of lined up and you know i think was kind of very clear that they may have come in with somebody else but they're going to go home with you after they take them out and clean them off it's like here do you want to hold your son you know after to, 30, uh, to us to us to after yeah. you know 30 seconds yeah and and we you know we got a, we had a room next to hers which is what they do um the first night she said i just need to sleep <laughs> and then the next day we we visited with her and she got to hold the babies she's part of the story she's part of their narrative um and she'll always be an important part of um you know our our family so you know we definitely feel that and 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 appreciate that she feels similarly so mark and debbie are now in full-on parenting mode with bottles in the kitchen baby clothes on the sofa and a white noise machine to help the twins sleep you'd never know how much they went through to bring their two boys into the world they're still processing the experience. I think the more we went down this journey from the IVF to the donor to the whatever, it, it, at least for me, it became a little stranger and harder to talk about because you never quite know, you know, how people are, are going to react. And, and, you know, in some regard, it's hard not to internalize the sense of it required all these steps. It, it, it in a way, I think, reminds us of kind of the difficulty of these things, which in some ways you like to sort of not think about and, and acknowledge. Yeah, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't feel that way. Like, I'm happy for people to talk about it. I think people need to talk about how families are created and there's so many different ways and there's more every day. Um, and it's not easy and it's not a given. Debbie wishes more people understood this and could make room for the possibility that things don't always work out. Because so many people go through IVF and have babies, everybody assumes that you go through IVF and you can have a baby. And not everybody has a baby. And there were some people who would say to me, like, you'll, ha- you'll get your baby. And I'm like, I might not get my baby. Like, don't, you know, it doesn't always work. Um, and we're lucky that we had options and we were able to have our, our beautiful babies. But if we didn't have the financial means, we, we might not. And, and I think that's a message that we don't hear enough, that it doesn't always work out for everybody. Now that the ordeal is behind them, Mark and Debbie are thinking about how they'll help their sons understand the story of their birth. The hope is that it will be much less um, unusual for there to be like, oh, I had a surrogate too because my two dads couldn't carry me and, and, and those kinds of things. Yeah, and, and, and my hope is that they will be proud and, and feel lucky to have been as wanted as, as they are. Debbie and Mark have planned a conversion ritual to honor their boys' membership in the Jewish community. They'll do the ceremony at the camp where Debbie spent 17 summers. A close friend who's an Orthodox rabbi will officiate, and the campers will bear witness. They have a mikvah that they just built, and we're going to do it there and hopefully make opportunity for the kids to learn about 
conversion and understand and maybe expose them to not all family making is as simple and just, you know, use it as an educational opportunity for the campers as well. They've designed a meaningful life cycle event, one they hope the boys will appreciate too, though it'll be a while before they're old enough to understand. For now, they're still just babies. And speaking of the babies, they've slept through our whole interview. They are, they're great babies. I think they got the memo that we are a little bit older, and so they've been very kind to us. They're just great. They started eating food, they roll over, they giggle, they, you know, they make us happy. They're cute. Yeah, they're pretty great. Yeah, we may be biased, but other people tell us they're really cute, too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When Debbie was Orthodox, she remembers sitting behind the mechitza, the partition between men and women during prayer services. It felt isolating to her. She was separated from the action. She says infertility feels like that too. You long to be part of what's on the other side, but all you can do is watch. Even with the experience behind her, she hasn't forgotten. She knows how important it is to remember that not everyone has it easy when it comes to bringing children into the world. Thank you for joining Can We Talk with the Jewish Women's Archive. We hope that we can be part of helping bring the conversation about infertility out of the shadows. In this spirit, we're so grateful to Mark and Debbie for sharing their story and entrusting us to tell it. The Can We Talk team includes JWA's Executive Director Judith Rosenbaum and Social Media Manager Emily Catanio. Ibi Caputo edited the script. Our theme music is by Girls in Trouble. We'd love to hear your responses to this episode. Please email us at podcasts at jwa.org. Visit us online at jwa.org slash canwetalk to listen, subscribe, and send your friends a link to your favorite episodes. If you listen regularly, consider making a donation at jwa.org slash donate. And if you're interested in sponsoring an episode, email us at podcasts at jwa.org. I'm your host, Nahani Rouse. I'll see you again next month.